Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Week five. We are in week five of a sermon series called A Journey into Captivity. Basically, we've been working through Galatians, the doctrines of Galatians. If you've been here, you know my argument. I don't think Paul did this on purpose, per se. But if you walk through Galatians, it actually doctrinally shows us what it looks like to go from the point of conversion to death in your relationship with Christ. You may remember this calendar. I've tried to flash it up every week. As you see today, we're moving out of the doctrines of conversion and into what I'm calling the doctrines of maturity, from conversion to maturity. This, this next three weeks will be an important segment. Now, Tyler, what's the difference? Well, real quick, doctrines of conversion, we talked about them, justified by faith, adopted into the family of God, liberated from law unto love. These are the doctrines that happen in a moment, a metaphysical moment, and impact you and your identity for the rest of your life can be a powerful spiritual experience. But on the flip side, the doctrines of maturity, these are the ones that happen moment by moment, every day forward, and they get worked out for the rest of your life. Now, do you see the difference? Let me explain to you like this. Um, It's like the doctrines of conversion, they're like a a one-night, all-you-can-eat bender of cake and ice cream for your birthday. It's a party. Like Luke 15 actually says, when people repent and come to the Lord, it's a party. The angels are rejoicing in heaven. So conversion is a party. But on the flip side, the doctrines of maturity, they're like, they're like waking up the next morning and then eating your protein and veggies for the rest of your life. The doctrines of conversion, uh, they're, they're the graduation party. The doctrines of maturity are hashtag adulting for the rest of your life. The doctrines of conversion, they're making the team. The doctrines of maturity are hitting the weights at 6 a.m. with the team in order to get better and better and better. It's the grind. It's the long walk of obedience in the same direction until you die. Now, I'm doing a great job selling these, I know. (laughs) But here's the thing. Uh, The doctrines of maturity, I just wanna be clear, they're hard stuff. They are difficult, but they're also the deep stuff of faith. They may be challenging, they may be costly, but they deliver a deep sense of satisfaction that the doctrines of conversion cannot. Yet so many Christians never pursue maturity in their faith. Let me say that again. So many Christians never pursue maturity with their faith. They're just content with getting dunked and getting in. I heard somebody call it eternal fire insurance. I just want to get my eternal fire insurance and I'm good. That's not how it's supposed to work. I'll use one of my favorite illustrations for this. So um, uh, at my kid's school, they've started doing this, this thing called the, the 100th day celebration. 
Uh, I didn't do this when I was a kid, but uh, you know, kids, a bunch of schools are doing it now. And so they encourage the kids to do uh, any, any number of things in order to celebrate it. You can uh, like make a shirt or you know, a, a craft with a hundred things on it. You can uh, dress up like somebody who's a hundred years old, or you can dress up like a, like a person who's 100 years old, or dress up like an, old, like an old person. So uh, my daughter chose to bedazzle a shirt with 100 jewels because that's who she is. My son chose to wear his Babe Ruth jersey because actually 1924 was one of Babe Ruth's best years. And he memorized a bunch of the statistics and it was a proud dad moment. But neither one of them dressed up like, like old people, but apparently a bunch of the, the kids, even some of the teachers at school did. Uh, so I was like getting online, look at some, some of the pictures. I just like get, literally just get on Google and Google 100 day, 100 day uh, school pictures. And uh, I found some of these, it's pretty cute, all right? So this first little girl uh, is absolutely awesome with her life alert necklace. I mean, suburban mom's going hard on that. The, ne the next one I, I love, this little dude just understood the assignment with his bow tie and his gray stash. But the last one is my favorite. It's two little girls got the tennis ball walkers and I, I feel like they made those wigs out of cotton balls. It's just precious, it's precious. Now I know you are literally about to explode with, with cuteness overload, but I wanna make a serious point here. Can you put the little girls back up again? This is what many of us look like in our faith. This. We've been Christians for years, but we have not grown up a day. You see? And I'll tell you, that's not biblical faith. I'm not sure Paul would even call it faith at all. It's cheap grace. There is a cost to discipleship, no doubt. There's also a greater cost to non-discipleship. So these doctrines of maturity, they aren't negotiable. And I would argue with you that yes, they are hard, but man, are they worth it, worth it. So that being said, would you do me a favor? If you're able, please stand. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. If you're not, that's okay. You can remain seated. And I would say, just put your heart and your mind in a place of submission under the authority of God's word. Because I wanna read to you, in my opinion, one of the scripture's clearest teachings about our first doctrine of maturity. The doctrine of sanctification, sanctification. The apostle Paul writes this to the Galatians, chapter five, verse 16. Live by the spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. For what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit. And what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to prevent you from doing what you want. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not subject to the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious, fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I am warning you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. By contrast, the fruit of the spirit is love, Joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. Word of the Lord, you can be seated. And thanks be to God for every last word of his word. Sanctification. Okay, 
So we're going to get practical in a minute, but there's, I'm going to do some pretty dense theologizing here for a second. So I want you to understand Paul's argument and also the theology around it all. All right, so let me explain to you sanctification at a theological level. There's four main points here to Paul's argument in Galatians 5. Point number one is this. Paul argues, and I know you saw it, he argues that the Christian, he ain't even talking to non-Christian, he's talking about the Christian here, the Christians of Galatia. He argues that the Christian has two warring masters inside of them, the flesh and the spirit. 517, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit. What the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh. These two are opposed to each other. See, there's a war going on, opposition. By the way, this, this passage is where we got the title for the entire series, A Journey into Captivity, because this is Paul's perspective. He believes that, that life is a journey into captivity. You actually have no choice in the matter. We will all be captivated by something. Something will, will drive our, our, our lives and sit on the throne of our hearts. We all worship, it's just a matter of what. We will be in captivity. The only choice you have in the matter, Paul says, is what you'll be captivated by. And there are two opposing forces, the desires of the flesh and the spirit. And they are in opposition to one another. Opposed, opposed, opposed. Three times he says it. He says, so you can be captive to the desires of the flesh or captivated by the spirit. The Christians they will resist and master the flesh and walk in the way of the spirit. Do you, see, do you see how he's working this out? Okay, so this is radically different. Paul's understanding of desire and what we are to do with it when we sense it is radically different than the way our culture processes desire today, isn't it? Uh, today we are told that our inner desires are sacred, period, full stop. They're like a mystical pathway to, to authenticity. A window into our true identity. They're to be discovered and then expressed, period, full stop. But Paul, 2,000 years ago, before we were even a thing, he actually issues us a warning about that mindset. Do you see? He says, the desires of the flesh, they are not natural, they are not neutral, they are in opposition to the spirit of God. Well, come on, man. You, you may not want to agree with him, but we all know that he's right here. Life proves to us that he's right. Even though it has become faddish to shout, follow your heart, be true to yourself. None of us actually live like that, at least not 100% of the time. We can't, because if we satisfied every carnal desire inside of us, society would devolve immediately into something worse than Game of Thrones. For one month, I dare you, for one month, think about this thought experiment one month if for one month you acted on every desire of the flesh that popped up in your mind by the end of that you'd be some combination of divorced friendless passed out dead or in jail and probably a few pounds heavier <laughs> my desires of the flesh tend to be around ice cream that's why I say that okay so <laughs> one of the things parents teach kids at a young age is how to self-edit these desires inside of us. You watch this little kid just walk up to another kid and just say, mine, cool, and take their cookie, take their toy. It ain't theirs, but mine, and they'll take it. 
And we teach kids not to do that. Like this, this bent inside of us towards self-assertion and self-indulgence, it's wrong. You gotta control it. You have to master it. So even though everybody's all like, live your truth, bro, live your truth, girl, we know that we all can't actually live like that. By the way, we are the outlier historically. You know that, right? Paul's philosophy is how many of the ancients and basically all of the world's major religions have thought about desire. Desire should be mastered wisely, not expressed freely. That's what the ancients say. The key to health, happiness, and flourishing is self-restraint, which is not doing what you wanna do when you know that you shouldn't, and self-discipline, doing what you don't wanna do when you know that you should. Self-restraint, not eating that extra donut, or maybe even the first one. Self-discipline, getting up in the morning and going to gym before work. You see, Aristotle, 350 years before Jesus, he argued that the only way to get happiness is through moral training that breeds virtue. What about Buddhism? It teaches rigorous self-discipline and self-restraint as the path to inner peace. What about Islam? The prophet said in his famous hadith, the greater struggle is the struggle, uh, struggle with the self. And what about Jesus, our teacher? Matthew 16, 24, if anyone wants to become one of my followers, let them deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. So you see, as it turns out, 2,000 years ago, Paul presents a theology of desire that is more sophisticated, supported, and time-tested than our modern enlightened culture. Paul says, just because you have a desire doesn't make it right. No, the key is to discern that desire wisely and decide whether it is a desire of the flesh or a desire of the spirit. Now, are you still with me? Because this is the argument. This is the basis for sanctification. Okay, so let's, let's do some definitions then real quick. Number two, uh, okay, flesh versus spirit, what's the flesh? Um, this is my best shot at, at what Paul's saying here. Uh, Paul is saying that the flesh is our corrupted desires that are bent towards self-indulgence and self-assertion. And he gives us a nice little list of some of those. Next slide here. So, okay, what's the spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit, according to Paul, is God inside you in order to guide you toward love of neighbor and honoring God. So next slide here, this is kind of how, how it plays out. You have a choice between two warring masters, desires of the flesh, which will push and point you towards self-indulgence and self-assertion, desires of the spirit, which will push and point you towards love of neighbor and honoring God, and you get to choose. Now, point number four here, getting practical. Uh, Paul says, there's really only one way to overcome the flesh. You are helpless to overcome the flesh, Paul says, outside of, of, of one external factor, the Holy Spirit of God. He says the only way to overcome the desires of the flesh is actually by the daily, gradual transformation of the Spirit. 5.16, live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. It's interesting, uh, N.T. Wright and Richard Hayes both agree on this. Uh, they put, the, put the verse back up there, uh, 5.16. The, the, two, the two, put it back up there. There we go. Yeah, the two uh, clauses here, live by the spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. They're both imperatives. But they argue that the way the sentence is structured and the argument is structured, the second one is a result of the first. So actually a better translation of it would be live by the spirit and then you won't 
or then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. One is causative. So how do I contain the desires of the flesh? Living by the Spirit. Now, okay, quick rewind. Do you remember, what, what did Paul call these virtues of the Spirit in 522 and, and 23? He calls them the what of the Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The translation I read said generosity. Well, what are they talking? It's goodness, okay? That's what they taught me in Sunday school. Goodness, right? Goodness is self-control. But I love the fact that Paul calls a fruit here. Fruit. It's a fantastic botanical metaphor that emphasizes the gradualness, the graduality of spiritual maturity. Spiritual growth is not instantaneous, it's slow. It's more seasonal than steady. Sometimes it's winter, sometimes it's spring. Sometimes you're bearing fruit, sometimes the tree is bare. But for the Holy Spirit, it's all a part of the process of growth. And he is 100% committed to growth in you. Now, summary slide, put it back up. Put the, put the four up there, summary slide for you. One, two, three, and four. This is Paul's argument around sanctification in Galatians 5. You have two warring desires in you, the flesh and the spirit. The flesh is our corrupted desires bent towards self-indulgence and self-assertion. The spirit is God in you in order to guide you towards love of God and neighbor. And the only way to overcome the flesh is the gradual transformation of the spirit. I'm gonna tell you, the pursuit of that is so worth it. Now you got the theology. Okay, I'm gonna give you more theology. Let's pr practical theology now though. Because um, I wanna show you how these, these two warring desires are at war, not just in our culture, but also in you. Let's start with the desires of the flesh. Of the two warring factions, spirit versus flesh, the flesh is not what's best for us, but I'm gonna tell you what, the flesh is the one that has won the PR battle in our cultural moment. Next slide here. One of the great schemes of the enemy is how he has normalized the desires of the flesh. So we call greed self-care. Retail therapy, the fruit of hard work. I deserve this, hashtag living the dream. This is just capitalism at its best. We call sexual license pleasure. No big deal. It's an appetite like food. Feed it. It'll make you happy. We call bullying, lying, fear-mongering, and hate speech politics. But it's just the way you got to do it if you want to win. So they say. Basically, money, power, and sex, those are the big categories of fleshly desires. And we are incredible at baptizing them all. It's crazy, actually, how things have shifted from ancient to modern times. Um, our framework used to be much more Augustinian. You heard Augustine? If you've been around here long, I, I, I talk about Augustine a fair amount. Augustine was a fourth century African prodigy who found Jesus at 30. Uh, before that, he had dabbled in basically every major philosophy and he found all of them uncompelling next to Jesus. So he became a Christian. And building on the tradition of Paul, Augustine uh, had this incredible argument that, that I think has so much explanatory power of the human experience. Augustine argued that human sin is actually rooted in disordered loves, disordered loves. So we're image bearers. 
He's a Christian, right? So he believes we're image bearers, created in the image of God, which means we were created to love God and to love each other. Our problem is, is that one, we either love the wrong things or two, we love the right things in the wrong order. And that's when our lives get sideways. Pretty practical, right? So for example, uh, it's not wrong to love your work. We're all called to work. We're all called to impact uh, civilization uh, through expressing our calling. Wherever God plants us, home, workplace, doesn't matter. We're, we're called in that way. It's good to love your work. But if you love your work more than your toddler, if you love your work more than your spouse, well, that's when destruction is just right around the corner. Now, until about the 20th century, Augustine's idea of ordering our loves wisely was, uh, was widely accepted. But Ron Belgo, he's an ethics professor, he actually argues that Sigmund Freud's thinking has changed us. Freud was early 20th century, um, and uh, he argues that we're no longer Augustinian as a culture, we're Freudian. Let me explain. Uh, Freud was not a Christian. Uh, Freud was an atheist. And building off of Darwin's theory that uh, humans are basically just animals, he argued that our most significant desire is our libido, our desire for pleasure. Now, he's a realist, so he didn't believe that everybody should just pursue pleasure however they want to, whenever they want to, because he knew that would be the destruction of society. We have to have some laws in place. But, but here's what he, he argued. Freud argues that it's this repression of our desire the laws, the rules, the things that authorities put on us in order to keep us in line. It's this repression of our desire that is the basis for all neurosis. Or in street talk, he argues that anytime any authority tells you not to act on an authentic, true to you desire, doesn't matter what it is, I wanna buy that, I wanna love her, I wanna get even. Anytime you're told not to act on an inner desire, that's what makes you unhappy. Now let me put a summary slide up here of Augustine and Freud, okay? Because I want you to think about how different these two worldviews are. Augustine, again, he says, humans are image bearers created to love God and each other. So when we love the wrong things or the right things out of order, even if it feels good in the moment, we suffer over the long haul. On the flip side, Freud says, humans are animals driven by desires for pleasure. Therefore, when our desires are suppressed, even for good reasons, like the good of our family, the good of our community, that's when we suffer. Now, I just want you to think about the two very different civilizations that, that these two worldviews represent. Think about these two very different views of human flourishing. And which one do you think our society fits better in? <laughs> So you probably guess which one I like better, what vision I have for our church. It's the former, it's Augustine's. But it should be pretty obvious to all of us that the latter has won the PR battle. We are captivated by how we feel. We're captivated by how we feel about how we feel. Alvin Platinga, an ethicist, he wrote it like this. He said, in such a culture and in the throes of such fascination, the self exists to be explored, indulged and expressed, but not disciplined or restrained. That's us. 
Now, that's a lot of theologizing. You, you good? I'm going to do a hard left turn here, all right, to, br- to bring some of y'all back, okay? Frozen, the musical. <laughs> Welcome back. So I'm into musicals. What? What, bro? I am here to dismantle your dusty gender stereotypes today, okay? Bro, bros can love lifting the weights and also Les Mis. It's real entertainment. I like to watch Sons of Anarchy and Yellowstone. I've been, hey, bro, I've been uh, marinating a brisket in Coors Light for six days preparing for the game today. Impressive. Tell me about your masculinity. If you play pickleball, I don't want to hear about your rugged masculinity. Anyways, um, that wasn't in the notes. Uh, I'm sorry. (laughs) Where were we? Frozen the musical. Sorry. Frozen the musical. This was the most recent musical to come through the Kentucky Center. And while many dads did the right thing and gave up their tickets so that their wives could take their daughters, I did not because I love musicals. Uh, but for those of you who have a young daughter, like my, my daughter's six, you, you've watched the movie 50 times. That's not an overstatement. And the most popular song in the, in the movie is what? Let it go, right? Let it go. You sing it, your daughter sings it, you know every word of it. You learned what a fractal is, okay? Um, it's great. But, but what are you actually singing? Mm. I'll tell you what you're singing. See that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, what are we actually singing? I'll tell you. <clears throat> You are singing the deformational PR message of our culture. Resist authority, look inside your heart, get in touch with the inner you and let it go, let it go. Don't hold it back anymore. You're an ice queen girl. Your deceased parents caused you enough uh, trauma. Who cares, you almost killed your little sister once. Uh, Just follow your heart queen. You don't believe me, lyrics. I'll just read you an excerpt. Let it go, let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. Let it go, let it go. Turn away and slam the door. I don't care what they're going to say. Let the storm rage on. The cold never bothered me anyway. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go, let it go, I'll rise like the break of dawn. Okay, no, like, let, let it go, let it go. That perfect girl is gone. Here I stand in the light of day. Let the storm rage on. Cold never bothered me anyway. Okay. Now, here's the thing. I, res- I actually respect the movie a ton. Let me talk about the movie. Because even though this song is what gets seared, literally seared in your memory, in the storyline of the movie, it's actually shown that Elsa's let it go attitude is unhealthy and destructive. Elsa unleash- uh, unleashes a cosmic winter on her community through her self-assertion. She almost kills her sister again. And it's actually only by an act of self-sacrificial love that, uh, that they're all saved from death, from isolation, from the cold and icy tyranny of Hans. <laughs> so love shines forth in Frozen. But how many of y'all explaining that to your six-year-old girl? <laughs> Not many. 
which is why we're raising a generation of youth trapped in icy prisons of their own doing. Now, sidebar here, my toxic trait is I can catastrophize any kid's movie as evil and then still have my kids watch it 50 times. So, <laughs> but real talk, real talk. My point is we're, we're so good at coronating the desires of the flesh. So what's the solution? Well, Paul's solution here, it isn't just white knuckle willpower. Like we gotta try, but it isn't just white knuckle willpower. It's, it's willpower meaning spiritual power. Back to point number four from earlier. The only way to overcome the flesh, Paul says, is by the daily gradual transformation of the spirit. Live by the spirit, I say, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Simple, one verse, there's sanctification for you. But how? How do you live by the spirit? It sounds so mystical and nebulous, how? Well, let me give you three as practical as possible in street talk pieces of advice. And maybe these will help. How do I live by the spirit? Well, first, first piece of advice is, is, is this. Quit making stuff up. Quit making stuff, quit baptizing your desires with the phrase, the spirit is leading me to, or, or God told me. One of the arts that I would tell any young pastor that they have to learn today is when, when even Christians are coronating their desires, you have to learn to compassionately look somebody in the eyes and say, the spirit didn't tell you that. Stop making stuff up. See, according to, the, uh, to Jesus, the spirit likes to talk about one thing in particular. Did you, did you know? Do you know what it is? John 14, 26, Jesus himself says, when the father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and will remind you of everything I have told you. Okay, so the Holy Spirit teaches and the Holy Spirit reminds us of what? What Jesus already said. He already said it. But we got people who are led by the Spirit coming up with all sorts of stuff that God told me that have absolutely nothing to do with Jesus. Sometimes stand in direct contradiction of Jesus. So to that, I just as lovingly as possible say, quit making stuff up. The Holy Spirit did not tell you that. The Holy Spirit never contradicts Jesus. Which leads me to point number two, quit making stuff up, one and two, stick to what's already been spoken. Jesus has, okay, the, the passage here says that the Holy Spirit reminds us, right? It reminds us of Jesus' teaching. Interesting thing, uh, if that's true, if the Holy Spirit is going to remind you of what Jesus has said, what Jesus has done, what does that imply about you? It implies that you already have some sort of baseline knowledge of Jesus. It implies that you're giving him some material to work with. Getting baptized, it's not like a matrix download of download Jesus now into my, and then now you got Jesus. You actually got to put in the work. You got to open up the word. You got to surround yourself in Christian community. You got to try to get to know him. And then the Holy Spirit can remind you. And praise God, he will remind you. That's a promise of Jesus. And we need that because it's so easy to forget, isn't it? I forget. Be honest. By the time you got the first chip in your mouth at the Mexican restaurant, you don't remember what I preached. We forget. Sometimes when emotions run high, we forget. Sometimes when we're wounded, we forget. Sometimes when it comes to our money, 
We forget. Sometimes when it comes to politics, we forget the teachings of Jesus. Sometimes when it comes to extreme pain and suffering, we forget. Or sometimes when it comes to extreme longing and desire, we forget. Fear makes us forget. Time makes us forget. And that's human. Thankfully, we have the spirit to remind us. But you gotta give them something to work with. (laughs) You got to. So here's an idea. And I would encourage you, find your way that you can fill your mind and heart with Jesus. But here's just an idea. Okay, right now we're doing a text reading plan. There's 1,700 people uh, part of it as our church. And I would encourage you to have a, we're gonna leave this up for a second. Text Bible to this plan right here. And every morning you'll get 10 minutes of an opportunity to read God's word and think through it with some of our pastors. Basically every morning we're sending out a reading and then a thousand characters from one of our pastors about that reading. It's been great. Jason Shreve has done an incredible job with Exodus. For those of you who have been reading it, incredible. I've been blessed by his, his thoughts and wisdom there. Um, and yeah, and here's the cool thing about it is that Lent is about to start. And so we're gonna start a new reading plan. I'm the one who's curating the reading plans, by the way. We're gonna start a new Lent reading plan that walks you through the last week of Jesus' life. Do you wanna fill your mind with Jesus as we walk towards Easter? Read the Bible with your church. Quit making stuff up. Stick to what has been spoken. And last, last piece of advice for you, stack up the moments. Stack up the moments. Now, here's the thing. I believe that if you can start stacking up moments where you look to the Spirit for guidance, walking with the Spirit gets easier because the Holy Spirit starts to gain control of your conscience. The Holy Spirit is not your conscience, to be clear, but He wants to sit on the control seat of it. So here's my theory. I actually think that if you're guided by the Spirit, that doesn't mean that you go to your prayer closet every night with like your list of dilemmas from the day. And you're like, okay, God, at the beginning of the day, me me and my my wife got in a fight. You know, what should I do about that? Holy Spirit vibes, Holy Spirit vibes. Oh, okay, got me, got it. Okay, God, you know, I just got a bonus at work. So should I give it, you know, should I be generous or should I pay off this debt or whatever? Holy Spirit vibes, Holy Spirit. Oh, okay, God, that's not how you do, right? You should pray about everything. And sometimes God will give you clear direction on the, the, the issues that are going on in your life. But I don't think that's how it normally works. Being guided by the Spirit is actually learning to react spiritually, to live it. Live by the Spirit, he says. It's a change in your second nature. You go from a first nature controlled by the desires of the flesh to a second nature controlled by the guidance of the Spirit. And you start producing fruit naturally. And as you stack up those moments, all of a sudden the Spirit is your reflex. And that's a fun place to live. It is. So start stacking up the moments. No, we're running out of time. So let me close up here and then we're gonna, we're gonna sing, sing two songs and take communion. By the end of the today, y'all, football will be over. <laughs> if you need to come to the rugs and receive some prayer later for that, come on. But the good news is, is that after football's over, that means we can turn our attention to baseball. What about basketball, Tyler? The cards and the cats. Anyways, we're going to go to baseball. Um, actually, the, the Louisville Cards baseball team, they start at the, the end of this week. If you don't have never gone out there with your family, or friends, you should go out there. Uh, Coach McDonald, he is full, about Love the Ville. He is a follower of Jesus. I love that man. Um, last year, uh, he let me and my, my son tour the locker room. And when we, we went in there, we saw in the weight room, there was a sign on the wall that said, uh, that said, today get 1% better. 
get 1% better today. And I love that because that's actually a great summation of sanctification. By the power of the Spirit, go get 1% better today. And who knows who you'll become one day at a time, 1% out of a, of a time over the course of 50 years. Sainthood, holiness, it doesn't happen by accident and it doesn't happen in a moment. It's the slow giving over of your life to the guidance of the Spirit. So get 1% better. You know, this month I have been thinking uh, about black history. And I've just found there are so many modern day saints we can learn from. Gardner Taylor, Mr. Goldenmouth preached one of my favorite sermons I have ever heard. Howard Thurman, that great theologian and his student, Pastor Martin Luther King. Mary McLeod Bethune, the teacher that shaped the nation. Thomas Dorsey, the father of gospel music. John Perkins, the man who would not be beat down by hate. Harriet Tubman, the conductor of the Underground Railroad. These are all very different people who did very different things for the record. But when I read their stories and stories of really any saint, I think to myself, wow, it's possible. They raise my hope in the horizon of human holiness. When we look at their lives, we begin to believe that if we too stack up the moments, we too stack up the months, we too stack up the years aiming to get 1% better every day, then like them, our lives too could be defined by love, by beauty, by courage, by faithfulness, by Jesus. So I say this every year. If you've been a youth in the youth group for a while, you've heard me say this before, but oh, how I wish the youths would ditch the worship of celebrities for the admiration of the saints. Like we let celebrities, many of who are opposed to Christian orthodoxy, set the horizon for so many things, things that don't matter, like, like fashion and lingo, that's fine. You know? But also things that do matter, like morality, politics, how we steward our body and money. And why? Because they're pretty? Because they got 16 million followers? Because they can shoot a basketball? Like we have better options in the history of our faith as followers of Jesus. So youths, be the generation who ditches the celebrities for the saints. Because you can be saintly too. Yes, you, you, even you. But not by the end of the day. It starts today, but it's one over a lifetime. So look, there is a better way to do life than just tasting desire. Live by the spirit, bear his fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is sanctification. This is the promise of sanctification. And it's the hard stuff, but it's the good stuff. You know what I believe? I believe sanctification is where bad habits go to die, praise God. It's where addictions become sobriety. It's where trauma gets healed, chains get broken, emotions get mastered, and desires get disciplined. I believe sanctification is where contentment becomes normal. Generosity becomes habit. Humility becomes second nature. Courage becomes reflex. Joy becomes unbreakable. Peace, unshakable. Virtue, unmistakable. It's where marriages become ministries and where friendships become siblings. Sanctification. It's where love becomes a lifestyle every day, everybody, everywhere. And I believe it's the secret ingredient to the life you actually want. It is. Walking with the Spirit is how you make the horizon of human possibility reality. But hey, anything in life worth having, it takes time and work. So what makes you think a life worth having wouldn't take time and work? So let's get 1% better today. In fact, Spirit, that's what I ask as we, as we prepare our hearts to worship and remember Jesus, 
Holy Spirit, sweep through this place today in a, in a unique way, like a fresh wind, a fresh breath of air. Captivate every open heart. There are many open hearts in this room, Spirit, that want, want to be like Jesus, that want to grow in him more. Captivate hearts and open closed hearts, even today. Begin to guide us all toward becoming more of who we could be, who we should be in Christ. Use our willpower as fuel, Spirit, and shape for us a life worth living by the power of Jesus. We pray this today. Amen.